Thank you, Pastor. I didn't know you were doing the intro and you were going to give that story this morning. But um, yeah, it's a joy to, to be able to be here today. Thank you, Pastor Brent, for the chance to, to speak here. Um, college ministry is a, a big part of my heart. I was joking with my wife as we drove for the holidays. I was like, Audra, I have a problem. And she says, what? And I was like, every sign for a college on the way down, I see it. And I want to know what church is near it so it can reach it. I'm just slightly obsessed. Um, my, I got to know Pastor Brent just from that burden. We had one of our students, one of our solid uh, students who had come out of our church who was up here at Purdue. And we had our chapter of what's called Cross Impact. That's our campus ministry down at IPUI. And there was also the chapter already up at Ball State through Grayson Muncie. And um, I had the burden, like, man, we got to have someone at Purdue, right? Robbie was looking for a church home to, to be a part of. He had searched for it, couldn't find it. I didn't know the area well yet. And so I, we prayed for a while, and it wasn't until Robbie's junior year that I found out that Berean was here. I, I, didn't, I just didn't know about it. I hadn't been in the state for long. And Pastor Goodwill was on his way out. And so I remember personally just praying, Lord, bring a pastor in who's going to have a heart for that campus nearby. And the Lord brought Brent Floyd up from Cross Point. And we had lunch about halfway between Indianapolis and, and Lafayette. And there was no hesitation. He's like, yeah, let's get it. Let's do it. I think just last night you were on campus. Um, and so to have the chance to, to be able to share this with you today from God's word uh, is an encouragement to me. It comes out of the heart for that. Actually, even some of what Pastor just shared is going to be some of the life experience that, that pushes this burden that I'm going to share with you this morning. So let's pray as we dive into God's word. Father, Lord of the harvest, we pray that you will send laborers into your harvest field. And Lord, as we come this morning as pastors coming out of the Thanksgiving season, Lord, there are responsibilities that you've called us to. There are joys of ministry that we have. There is a stewardship that each of us has been given as you are the chief shepherd and we are your under shepherds. Lord, I pray that we would reflect the great shepherd, the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. And Lord, give me wisdom this morning as we look into your word. Give me clarity. Help for me to say only what your Holy Spirit has led me to say. Help for me to give the principles of your word clearly. And as we walk out of here this morning, Lord, I ask that you would excite our hearts for ministry, that you would rebuke us where we need it, that we would be humbled, but Lord, most of all, I pray that we would be disciples who make disciples, that the message of the gospel, that the truths of your word, that the values that we hold dear will continue on and move forward. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Give us wisdom as your Holy Spirit works in this time. Pray us in your name. Amen. As we begin this morning, I want you to just think back a little bit on your life journey. We just came out of the Thanksgiving season where you're giving thanks for many things, I want you to think about those who invested in you as you grew up. Think about those who first shared the gospel with you. Think about those who, when you were young in your faith, brought you under their arm, brought, the, brought you under their wing, and helped you as you were discipled in Jesus Christ. I ask, even as you think about those people, was it an intentional process? Was it informal? Was it one of those things where you opened up your Bible and some of it felt a little self-guided for you? as it certainly should be to some extent? Were there others who guided you and mentored you? Probably for most of us, it was a little bit of both. But everyone's story is different, and as Philippians 1 tells us, he who began that great work in you will complete it. And so along the way, the Lord has probably used many different people to help you be where you are today and to be sitting where you are. But even as we start this morning, I want you to take a moment to think about those who did disciple you, whether it was intentional 
whether it was maybe just in one uh, moment, those who specifically poured into you. Today, we're going to look into a part of our Christian walk that is vitally important and really shouldn't happen just on accident. And as simple as this sounds, we are talking today about discipleship, but specifically discipleship from the pastor's seat. My main mentors in life, I was thinking through as I challenged you to do that exercise, I wanted to do that myself. And I thought through, obviously my dad was one of the first ones who influenced me as a second generation believer, as pastor just shared some of our family's story. I remember as a kid when my dad came to me one night and asked me if I wanted to be saved. And I understood what it meant, and I wanted to. My dad led me to the Lord. Then as I was growing in my walk, obviously Pastor Phelps was always an overarching part of that, being the pastor of Trinity Baptist, but then there were others as well in my life. I remember when my youth pastor, I was emailing back and forth with him about something at one point, and he says, who knows, maybe you'll be my daughter's youth pastor someday. And that shocked me. Um, No one in my family had been in ministry, but the interesting thing about that was the Lord was already tugging that way, and his comment uh, really fueled that even more. Then in college, I, I had many professors who... Um, were a major influence, Brian Trainer being one of them, but a lot of others uh, along the way who influenced me. And now in ministry, I'm here with Pastor Phelps at Colonial, never expected to be on staff with him. It kind of comes full circle when you think of that story. Um, but he's taught me what it's like to be a pastor. He says, Andy, these are the things that a pastor says. These are the things that a pastor does. Here's how a pastor does things in his home. Here's how a pastor conducts himself. All these different things that he's brought me under his wing to help me learn this is not only what the Christian life looks like, but also the Christian life as a pastor, as a leader looks like. And so I stand here today because so many others have mentored me. Um, about two, I think it was about two years ago when we started swapping some hats around at church, and I switched from the children to the young adults full time. Um, and as we did that, I started thinking through what is my discipleship philosophy going to be? Because every age group, every life stage has some differences in how we apply the principles of discipleship. And so I was praying a lot over that. And as I did, open with me briefly to Ecclesiastes 10. We'll just start here this morning. But I was reading in my devotions, and uh, I came to this verse in Ecclesiastes 10. And in verse 10, I had a friend in in our young adults minister who said the, uh, the sounds of Pages turning in the Bible is very helpful for anyone up front so they know when everyone's there. Once you stop hearing those, you know everyone's got there. Ecclesiastes 10.10 says, If the iron be blunt, and he do not wet the edge, then he must put to more strength, but wisdom is profitable to direct. And I started thinking about this and understanding what it meant, and the idea basically is you could have a guy who goes into the woods with a blunt axe, and he could swing at all the trees, and he could work, so hard in order to get all of those trees cut down. But if he was wise enough to sharpen his axe, his, his uh, work would be much more effective. And as I thought about that, I thought, I don't want to just experiment with everything, although there is some trial and error. But Lord, give me wisdom to know what is the best way for me to disciple these young adults. What would a sharp axe be? It reminds me of a moment we had our, our youth group went to Camp Penile this summer to do a uh, a missions trip slash camp. Our juniors went as well. And uh, Pastor Brandon was in the woods with one of our teens named Josiah. And Josiah is a workhorse. You would look at him, and I think he maybe is 10th grade, but he looks like he's 25. I mean, he is just a man. And that guy knows how to work. And, and they were in the woods. Brandon had the better, I think the better of the, uh, uh, now I can't remember the tool name. It's a very basic tool. Saw, yeah, but what's the 
Chainsaw, there we go. Oh my goodness, your brain just goes away when you're up here. Um, chainsaw, and Josiah had a smaller chainsaw, but Josiah was just creaming those woods. Right, like that man knew how to use it. He had a, a useful tool. He also knew the skills, how to do it effectively. And as I looked at this, I was praying, Lord, help for me to be effective in this. It's important in life and ministry that we are always looking to sharpen our axe so we'll be more effective laborers for Christ. This passage really shows us that our faithfulness is always important, but so is our excellence. And so I was praying a lot over that and started thinking through, what does discipleship look like? And obviously, when I looked at the principles of God's word, as many of you know, it's a multiplying principle. That rather than us just running around doing all the work, it's one person investing in another person who invests in another person. Dawson Trotman was a, uh, obviously the, the founder of The Navigators, if you've heard his story. One thing I've come to love, and actually this is another thing I gained from Pastor, is a desire to read biographies of believers. And Dawson Trotman was one of those. And he had developed this rigorous burden to be as evangelistic as he possibly could be. And so as he did that, he would drive around, and whenever he would see someone hitchhiking, he would pick them up because that was a gospel opportunity. But, uh, and he had led so many to the Lord that way. But one day as he was driving, he saw one. He picked up someone who was hitchhiking um, with the goal of sharing Christ with him, and he realized he had already talked to this man before um, and that he had led him to the Lord maybe a year before, and the guy was no different than the moment that he had met him the year previous. And in that moment, he became burdened, not just that he would treat salvation as the finish line, but so that he would realize that this was just the beginning of discipling some for God's glory. And in his famous message, Born to Reproduce, he asked the question, who's your man? Or for ladies, who's your women? woman? Who's the one that you are pouring into with the goal that they would then pour into others? Scripture has a lot to say from beginning to end about discipleship. In the Old Testament, obviously the story that would come to our minds in Deuteronomy 1 is the story of Moses when his, grandfather, or when his father-in-law, Jephthah, encouraged him, you need to invest yourselves in others. Moses said, and I spake unto you at that time, saying, I am not able to bear you myself alone. The Lord your God hath multiplied you, and behold, ye are this day as the stars of heaven in multitude. There were so many of them, and so he gives him that wisdom, delegate to others. Then in Deuteronomy 6, we're reminded that discipleship starts in the home. Because it says that we, are to take, that we teach them as we go along the way. As we go in, as we go out, as we rise and we sit down with our own children. We are to disciple them. And as pastors, that is obviously an important part of our ministry. We have to disciple at home first. It continues on with Elijah and Elisha, Jeremiah and Baruch, Samuel and all the prophets that were under his oversight. Proverbs 27 reminds us, iron sharpens iron. So a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. When we come to the New Testament, Jesus' mandate for us in Matthew 28 is that we make disciples of all nations. Go ye therefore and teach or make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That is the mission of the church. It's our mission personally. Jesus exemplified it when he sent out his disciples two by two. And as he prayed over those disciples, and Jesus in John 13 says, I give you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And Jesus accomplished his own discipleship through careful prayer for his specific disciples. He went into the mountain and he prayed. He even told his own disciples, I pray for you. And then he had that careful selection that he spent time discerning who are the 12 that I'm going to invest my life into. And in Mark 3.14, it reminds us that it takes time. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. Uh, one of my mentors said, life is, life is ministry, ministry is people. 
People take time. And Jesus certainly exemplified that. I was just down uh, for the holidays in, in Greenville. I went to Faith and Taylor's where Pastor Son is, is pastoring down there. And they had a missionary presentation about this ministry in the Philippines that is multiplying like crazy. And it was really cool to hear the stories. Um, and, uh, but with the midst of that stories, they, they would lead someone to the Lord. And they didn't even, it was almost interesting, they didn't always celebrate like, hey, this person just made a profession. Immediately someone quietly would come alongside and become the mentor for that one. And, and would help confirm those things with a, a changed life. Hebrews says to imitate those men of faith who received the promises. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 says, I exhort you therefore to be imitators of me. Um, later on he says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And the passage that no doubt many of you are thinking, you're talking about discipleship, are you going to mention this? In 2 Timothy 2, 2. He says, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same that commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Each of these things that we just looked at is the reminder that truth doesn't just automatically get passed down. We must invest it into the next. If we want our children and those in our church to catch our values, we need to teach them those values. We need to pull them under our wing, love them, have a relationship with them so that we have the opportunity to share those things. We are all called to be disciples who make disciples. And a quote from a book I read about pastoral ministry It says this, men who qualify for the work of ministry are men who can keep the gospel torch burning brightly so that they are able to pass it on undimmed to those who follow. As we begin this morning, my my burden is that we would all be able to pass that baton, that torch, undimmed to those who come after us. You know, we've asked a lot of questions. This is a pastor's meeting, and even as a young guy, I feel like an old guy with some of these things that we think about. But I think we all have the burden. You hear the stories of churches without pastors, and you think, where are the next men coming from? That's a frequent conversation in, in settings like this. And obviously, there's a whole host of answers to why these things are happening. Sometimes there is sin that, that hinders those, that, that line from being brought on. Sometimes it's that God is sovereignly orchestrating a situation where He has shelf lives for certain places. But I think one thing, as we dive into this this morning, is that there are many leaders who had a Paul, a spiritual mentor who invested in them. There's many who had Barnabas-like encouragers that they served with, but forgot to get a Timothy, that who they would then bring along. And maybe sometimes the reason that we don't have leaders is that we aren't discipling the next leaders. Um, And even as I'm I'm a product of this, But there's a system that we've all depended on for a long time, and it's been a good one, where we disciple our high schoolers, our children, and our church. We send them off to Christian college, and then later on, we hope that they come back. And when we need our pastors, we call up those places. And if it feels like the pool has run dry in one place, then we build connections in another one, hoping to pull pastors from there. And that's a good model. I'm a product of it, and I'm a thankful product of it for that theological training. But it is important for us to remember not just to farm out our discipleship to other places, but to do it in our church. And to not rely on external places to have our disciples come back and lead our church. We need to consider who from our church family we could pour into. My burden this morning is that churches should be the main place of discipleship. We must be equipping the disciples in our midst. We must personally model that discipleship. And we must, we must set up a culture of discipleship within our church family, so that others will do it as well. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the passage we will be in. I know that was a little bit of an extended introduction, but we're going to go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and we're going to learn from the example of an excellent discipler. Someone who was 
very skilled in making disciples, but also understood his role and understood what he should do. We're going to the Gospel of John as we think about pastorally our need to multiply ourselves in others. What does that look like? We're going to learn from the master discipler here, John the Baptist. Starting in verse 19, let's read down through verse 28. It says, And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, said the prophet Esaias. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not the Christ, nor Elias, neither the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize you with water, but there standeth one among you whom you know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in uh, Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But we're introduced to who Jesus had said was one of the greatest men to have ever lived, John the Baptist. You guys know his, his character profile. You know so many things about him. He was certainly a nonconformist, living like a gruff prophet of old in the wilderness. And the establishment didn't know what to do with him. I mean, he was living in the wilderness. He was eating bugs. He was a weird dude in the midst of the wilderness. And yet, um, people were coming from all over out to the wilderness. He was not just off the highway. They had to work hard to get out there. And he had a following of people who were disciples that, that he was investing in. Because his job was to make hearts tender for the coming of the Messiah. He had a specific role. And so he was tenderizing hearts for Jesus' ministry. And incredibly enough, he built up that following of students. And so we start by asking ourselves this morning, what is the role that he played? And as we ask what his role is, we realize that true disciples of Christ know their role. And as they know their role, first of all, they reject undue praise. It says in verse 19, as I turn back there, he says, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he says, I am not. Art thou the prophet? And he answered, No. And they said unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that send us? So first of all, John had to clarify who he wasn't. He had to clarify who he wasn't. Because these, the establishment didn't know what to do with him. He, was, he did not train in their seminaries. He did not do the things that they normally did. He did not teach in the places that they would teach. And they didn't know how to handle him because John was a wild card to them. And so they go out into the, the wilderness to find that out. And they ask, who are you? And this would have been a moment for John's ego that he could have really accepted all of this praise that was given to him. But he didn't. He confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. John knew his role. He knew that his role was to point to somebody else and not to take that praise for himself. There were all kinds of expectations about the Messiah, but about this, John was emphatic. I am not the Christ. And in verse 21, they asked him, what then? Are you Elias or Elijah? And he says, I am not. Art thou the prophet? And he answered, no. We do know that Malachi was foreshadowing the ministry of John the Baptist. But in this passage, he is trying not to take any credit for anything that he has done. This, this ministry that he's amassed in the wilderness, really what he wanted everyone to know is, I am not anyone special. And he seems to have really believed that. Every answer that they asked about his own greatness was terse and brief. 
He didn't want to entertain it. But these questioners had to return to their boss with some kind of answer. Right? They went all the way out there to find out who he was. The establishment wanted to put him in a category. What category are you, John? And they said unto him, Who art thou, in verse 22, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? Then who are you? We specifically need to give an answer to our bosses. Brother, I, brothers, I take from this passage that none of us is anything special. No matter how many years we've been in ministry, no matter if we are old or young, no matter if we've been successful in the world's eyes or not, we must acknowledge I am not anything special. I am what I am by the grace of God. Amen. And as all of us have the joy to say this together, we praise him who has counted us faithful, Amen. putting us into his service. Amen. I remember that longing in my own heart and life to be a pastor. I had just finished my undergrad. I was in my seminary training. And I really longed for that office. Whoever desires the office of a bishop desires a good work. I remember a couple of foundational moments along the way. I was serving in an inner city church in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And a little boy named Miles, one of our faithful kiddos, we were out just playing out, out in the air with all the kids. And he yells out, hey, Pastor Andy. I had never been called Pastor Andy yet. And I remember how much that shocked me to even hear him say that, even though I didn't have that role yet. And then I remember the day that at the end of my internship at Colonial, um, got the wartime call up as someone moved on elsewhere and we needed someone to fill the role. And I remember I sat in the office with Pastor and he, he talked through RK Andy. Here's what I'm thinking. He's like, I want you to step in, be in this role temporarily in order then to move into this role. I want you to be the interim pastor now, and then later on you'll be an assistant pastor if the congregation affirms this. Um, and I remember thinking through all that processing, and I went back to my apartment, and I was overwhelmed with the thought, wait a second, he just told me I'm going to be a pastor. What I've been longing for, right? It's a great privilege. And it's humbling because we are not anything special, but God counts us faithful. And brothers, the discipling role of the pastor is a responsibility, and it's a privilege, and it's a joy. John had to start by declaring what he was not. And so he then begins to humbly acknowledge what his role truly is in verse 23. And so a discipler humbly acknowledges their role. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as says the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees, and they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom you know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. John quotes Isaiah 40 and verse 3. In this passage, he says, I'm simply the voice of one crying in the wilderness. You understand that picture. Many of you have studied it. That the idea is the, the way was rough. The path was horrible. And John was coming to make that path clearer. He was trailblazing so that the Messiah could walk on a clear path for his ministry. And in a sense, when John refers back to that, he's saying, I'm just a voice. I am just crying out in the wilderness so that people will see the one that they should look at. I'm simply a voice. You know, I, growing up in New England, uh, New Hampshire was called the Granite State. And so there were areas where you would drive through and you could tell this was a rock-blasted highway, right? All the, the sheer cliffs on the, on the sides of you there. Actually, Vermont had more granite, but don't tell anyone that. New Hampshire takes pride in being the Granite State, okay? But John, in a sense, is saying, I am blasting the way so that Jesus can come through. And brothers, as pastors, we must also acknowledge our roles. John acknowledged his role. He was the forerunner of the Messiah as our roles are as pastors. What's our role? We're called to be the bishop 
the overseer, the one who brings administration in our church family. We're called to be the shepherd, the caretaker, um, reflecting our chief shepherd as under-shepherds. We are called elders, ones of respect, ones who need to conduct our lives with character. And we have the jobs of preaching and teaching and discipling and leading and equipping and administrating. This is our role. We must accept it. We must embrace it. We must push forward in it. And if we're neglecting any parts of that role, we must reassess and embrace those parts of our calling. With the Great Commission, going and making disciples of all nations as our mission for the church, we also must be doing that through our preaching, through our teaching, through our modeling, through our leading, through our administrating. Every single one of those roles needs to have discipleship involved. And with that in mind, then John, the third lesson that we learn here as he's looking through understanding his role is that he acknowledged what true greatness is. Verse 25 says, And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou, if thou be not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you who you do not know. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. These men were very confused. Okay, John, you don't claim to be Christ. You don't claim to be Elijah. You don't claim to be the prophet. Then who are you claiming to be? And what he's trying to point them to is there's somebody else that's coming who I can't put a candle to. And he's reminding them, I baptize with water, but somebody else is going to come who's going to baptize you even better than I do. You don't know him yet. He's coming after me. But he is one who I want to acknowledge here. And John was so humble. We know that he himself was the one who said, he must increase, I must decrease. You see, brothers, what we learn from this is that the heart of a true multiplying disciple is humility. We must have an accurate, humble view of ourselves. There's nothing that we have to offer that hasn't first been given to us by God himself. Anything that's praiseworthy in us comes from him. Our role is to herald the name of someone greater. John is one of those first multiplying disciples in the New Testament, and we can certainly learn from his humility. He meant it when he said he must increase and I must decrease. And discipleship from the pastor's chair requires humility. I could let that person teach that Sunday school lesson but what if the church receives it better than they receive my messages? I could pull someone under my wing, but what if that shakes up the status quo of what our church is used to? What if it makes the church dissatisfied with my leadership? What if they become so effective that they move on somewhere else? I disciple them so much that somebody else takes them. All of these things are things that can really shake our hearts. Or what if I have him lead the, the morning worship service and he makes a mistake and a guest has just come in for the first time? Right? And all of a sudden, they didn't receive our A-plus effort because I took a risk on this disciple. Brothers, let us avoid these subtle motives of our sinful flesh. Our pride can hinder the health of our congregations. Developing leaders and making disciples is our mandate. Creating discipleship culture is our responsibility. And seeing a church family filled with disciples and disciple makers is our joy. Multiplying ourselves in leaders who will multiply allows so much more to get done for Christ than if it all just depends on us. As we know, we are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We must model it personally. We must facilitate it corporately. You know, there was a, a great joy that I had even just a couple weeks ago. And I'll, I'll admit, a couple, for a couple years, I've invested in quite a few who did not want to follow Christ and went their own way. Sometimes they pull a John Mark, where they leave right in the middle of the missions trip. But some of them come back, Amen. right? And sometimes some of them pull the Demas and we lose them. 
But for all of those, there are also others that we gain. We have Epaphras and Epaphroditus and Priscilla and Aquila and Barnabas and so many others that as we send them out, um, have effectiveness in their ministry. And we have to understand that and embrace that. So we had had some, some seasons where things hadn't gone well, but recently the Lord's brought us some young adults that are on fire. And it's a joy. And I, I almost cried at the end of a single focus one night. Or I was actually, I was really excited. I probably almost cried on the way home as I was thinking about it. Because I was standing there, we were talking to one of our guys named Joe. Ryan and I were talking to Joe. He had, he's been here for a year. He was growing tremendously. And the Lord moved him to Utah just a week or two ago. But then I looked at the other end of the room and I saw David, who is from uh, the Congo and then lived in Johannesburg, is on fire for God, and he's discipling a younger believer named Zion in the back of the room. And then I looked, and there was somebody who had just gone through a really difficult breakup, and her dad died, and she's talking to another girl, investing her life in her. And then I looked, and I saw on the front row a guy who had just been saved within the past year, had seen... Um, some unfortunate versions of Christianity growing up had just, as he describes it, wore a mask, and his mask is coming off, and he's growing, and I looked as on the front row, one of our guys was sitting down with his Bible open, instructing him in the Word, right? And I, I looked around at that room, and I thought, man, praise the Lord for multiplying disciples, right? This is our joy, and it's a great privilege for us. So we realize, first of all, that true disciples must understand our role. Brothers, we are pastors, And our role is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry while at the same time we are modeling it and investing ourselves in other people. But also true disciples of Christ promote their Savior. In verse 29, it says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come, baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode on him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom this shall see the Spirit descending, and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bare record that this is the Son of God. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. We realize from this passage that we promote our Savior in word, that we proclaim to everybody the Messiahship of Jesus. And John cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God. We also realize that we also must promote our Savior in sacrifice. And this comes in verse 35. It says, Again the next day John stood and two of his disciples. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? And they said unto him, Rabbi, which is to, be, uh, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? John had amassed quite a following. As you know, discipleship, or the way that that would work in, the old, in really the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament, is that they would literally live with their master. They would walk where he would walk. They would do the things that he would do. They would follow him around so that they didn't just learn from his words, but from his life. And there were quite a few who had done that with John. And John, his whole time, was telling his disciples, there's someone better coming that is worth living for. And these men that we see in this passage had followed John. They had now had decided that they were going to follow Jesus. In this part in the passage, John begins to take a back seat. We see that he backs up what his words were when he said he must increase and I must decrease. Andrew, and whoever this other disciple is, many debate whether it was Philip or John, 
John often doesn't mention himself in these Gospels. But as, as he passes off these to others, we realize that these were quality disciples that he's giving away. Right? Andrew was a connector. We don't know a ton about him, but what we do know is that he was the type of person that brought other people with him. And many of you know the joy of when you have a connector like that. We crave a connector like that, right? In campus ministry, when you have one person who has that warm personality who's able to bring others, it changes your group, right? Andrew is that kind of person. And yet, in this case, John gives him away. He yells out, behold the Lamb of God, knowing that these men will then want to follow him rather than himself. And if you have someone who's good at bringing others to Christ, they are valuable. He gives these ones away. And this is such an important part of discipleship. We invest in people in order to send them. We might not always get to keep them for long. With our young adults at church, two years is a long time to keep them. And because they're in a stage where they can move everywhere. And we must invest our lives into somebody else only to give them away for Christ's sake. That's the nature of discipleship. John invested and then he gave them away for God's purposes. Friends, loyalty to Jesus above all is so important. John gave away his discipleships. He did not demand that all of their loyalty would go to him, even though he had invested in them. He wanted their first loyalty to be to Christ. And I do think it's important that mentors and mentorees give loyalty to each other. In fact, it kind of annoys me when I see people who someone's invested in them and then they differ in their philosophy of ministry and they just leave and they don't treat their mentors well. It's important that we, maybe even afterwards today, send a text to that one who mentored us and thank them for it. But in this case, John the Baptist knew it was very important for him to give, make sure their loyalty was to Jesus more than it was to him. We disciple them to send them. Whether that sending is within our midst and they rise up in our midst and we send them out into our community or whether we send them elsewhere. So what happened in this passage? We don't hear about John anymore. Jesus' ministry is now in focus. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and said unto them, What seek thou? And they said unto him, Rabbi, which is to be interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? True disciples of Christ, my last point this morning is that they pursue people pursue people. When you read down through the rest of this chapter, Jesus gives this invitation, come and see. And then Philip, later on when he goes to Nathaniel, says, come and see. Our calling for all of us is to be equipping some, but then inviting others to come and see so that then they will then go out and tell others to come and see. We don't have the chance to look at every detail of this story, but it is a huge joy. Andrew was a connector. Philip was a connector. John might have even brought along his brother James. Pursuing people is a massively important part of being a disciple. As pastors, we must model that pursuing of people. Do you have friendships with your neighbors? Do you have pockets in your own community that you are diving into? Each of our communities is vastly different. The ministry that we have in Indianapolis is going to be very different than the ministry that Pastor Brent has in Lafayette, and very different than some of the ones that you have up north. All of us have different ministries that we're called to, but it is our task to pursue people. And, and to pursue them, not just from the moment of their salvation, but all the way through in their maturity, as long as God gives them to us as our stewardship. This morning, we've looked at just a few aspects of being a multiplying discipler. You must know and fulfill your role as a, as a shepherd. And a vitally important part of that in our teaching, in our preaching, in the investment of our time, and more, is being a disciple maker who makes disciples. Discipleship takes humility. It takes loyalty to our Savior more than to our pride. Let Christ increase and we decrease. 
Discipleship requires that spirit of ownership and sending and of pursuing people. So how does this look for the pastor today? A couple simple applications and we're done. First of all, model and create that culture of discipleship in your church. Think through, if you had the goal of, what would it look like from the moment somebody is saved and they sit in this pew, what would it take for them to go from that stage in their spiritual walk to a mature, leading disciple of Jesus Christ? What values do you want them to catch? What ministry skills do they need to develop to be a, a, a quality disciple? What kind of time is it going to take to invest in that person? Think through what those steps would be. And then ask, how is everything that your church is doing accomplish that? Because we are taught, called to be go and make disciples of all nations. And so everything that our church does should foster that discipleship culture. Whether for you it's small groups. I've heard of some churches that even during their Sunday school hour have a bunch of one-on-one -on -one discipleship meetings going on in the foyer as people walk in. And what having a small group or what having that or whatever else you do, what it also does is it models to the whole church family that this is what we're about. Right? And so we need to have those kinds of things. It takes intentionality. It takes training. It comes with accountability. It takes close relationships. It, come, it takes risk, right? <laughs> discipleship takes risk. I can't imagine how messy it was when Jesus sent out his disciples and they came back and said, we tried to cast out demons and we couldn't. That was messy. But it was a chance for him to teach. And it takes work. Life is ministry. Ministry is people. People take time. Reflect on those who invested in you, who gave you the things that you have today, who gave you the opportunities, who gave you the training, who taught you the character, who modeled what the home life should be, be grateful for them and imitate them. These things that you have learned, commit to faithful men who shall teach others also. Be disciple makers who make disciple makers and mobilize your church to be full of disciple makers. And you will have joy. And you might just be discipling the one who replaces you. And praise the Lord for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance we've had to look through these principles this morning. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in us. Help us think through the ways that we can incorporate these concepts, but may we be disciples who make disciples. Give us the humility and the wisdom and the power to do that. And we will trust your Holy Spirit for it. We will thank you for what you are doing and what you will do. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Andy. That was a challenge. Appreciate that so very much. I couldn't help while he was preaching thinking of the many mentors in my life and so many people who invested in my life uh, through the years and uh, so thankful for them. Thank you for that challenge. We look forward to the next session as well as uh, Evangelist Barbara will be preaching in the next session. But right now we'll take about a 10 to 15 minute break. Looks like till about maybe five after 11 or so. And so there is uh, coffee and fruit and I'm not sure. I'm assuming there's still some donuts left over in there. Uh, but again, the restrooms here in the lobby are, are both designated for uh, us as men. And then there's one more in the, the kitchen area as well, uh, if you need to avail yourself of that. But enjoy some time of fellowship. We'll meet back. There will be a song, uh, maybe the piano, about 5 after 11 or so. But enjoy a little bit of fellowship, and then we'll meet back here in about 10, 15 minutes.